for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. About different cultures, different uh, ways in which we want to be as a church. And so today we're going to be look at, looking at the whole thing of risk-taking faith. And just as an aside before we get into what risk-taking faith is today, which is obviously what I'm going to be speaking on, I just thought it'd be kind of helpful just to sort of say this to you, really, that we mustn't confuse culture with vision. Those two things often can get confused if we're not careful. You see, the, the thing with, with culture is, is different from vision in that vision is where we want to go as a church. Our vision as a church is where we want to go to. And strategy, if you're going to use that word, would be how we want to get there. Culture is who we are. Culture is what makes us who we are and who we want to be like. Now, those three words, culture, strategy and vision, if you were to read any kind of church structure, church leadership style book, you'll find that those words come up all the time. And to be honest with you, every single writer seems to have a different opinion about and a different definition of what those three words mean. But there's one thing that they all seem to have that's in common and one thing I've found that they have in common. And that's the of vision, strategy and culture. Culture is the most important. You can't get anywhere if, you're, if you not, don't think about who you are first of all. You can't put a strategy in place as a people unless you actually think about who you are first. Because culture, if I'm honest with you, is who you are when nobody's looking. Culture is how we treat one another on a Sunday and throughout the week. But also how we treat those outside of our church community. So culture will always trump vision and strategy. It will always trump those things. Culture is really hard to establish. If you go in as a, a boss into a, in a new work environment and you've got a team that's set up there, it's difficult to change their working habits. It's difficult to actually kind of try and change how they behave and how they work. Culture and changing culture takes effort and willingness of every member to turn ideas into habits. And so, therefore, all of us are going to have to work hard at these different things. We're all going to have to work hard at them. Some of us are going to be better at these things than others. Some of us are going to have one area that we're really gifted in. And others are going to maybe have another area. But we're all going to have to work hard at uh, these things of seeking the presence of God, of being generous, of honouring one another, of encouraging one another, and having a risk-taking faith. We're all going to have to work hard at those things. Now, when I was given the topic of risk-taking faith, I had a list of questions that I, I kind of came up with in my head that I wanted to answer. And so these kind of are forming the basis of what I want to say today. So the three questions that I whittled it down to eventually were, what is faith? Because I thought it'd be quite a helpful thing to start with. What does risk-taking faith look like? Why is that different from just saying we want to be a people of faith? Why are we saying we want to be a people of risk-taking faith? So what's the difference? And secondly, how can we as a church model risk-taking faith? So they're the three things that we want to look at this morning. So, first of all, what is faith? Well, there's a quote that often gets used by preachers when they talk about what faith is, and they quote John Wimber. And John Wimber, who was the, the, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, he, he once said, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. He said, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Faith is spelt risk. And I never agreed with that, if I'm honest with you. Because, actually, the, the meaning of what he was getting at has been confused, and people sort of say, well, faith is spelt risk. And I don't necessarily think that's true. If you, in fact, if you read the Bible, the biblical definition of risk, sorry, of faith, never looks like risk. It looks quite different from it. And I think a really good place to go to for a biblical definition of faith is Hebrews uh, chapters 11 and 12. If you want to find out about faith, read chapters 11 and 12 of Hebrews. 
Do you know, in, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, faith, the word faith gets mentioned 24 times. So if you were going to go anywhere in the Bible and look for a place where you could find a definition of faith, it would be there. And the writer to the Hebrews says in, in verse 1 of, of chapter 11, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So the writer of the Hebrews is getting at this, that faith has two elements to it. First of all, it's the substance of things hoped for. And secondly, it's the evidence of things that are not seen. So what does that mean? What does that actually mean? Because we read things in the Bible and we're like, what, what? you sometimes skim by it and go, okay. But what does it mean? What does it mean to say that faith is the substance of things hoped for? Matt Chandler, who's a, a preacher from America, he's one of my favourite preachers, he said this, and it really got to me because I think it, I, love, I love what he said on, on faith. He said that the foundational element of faith is, discont- is a discontented heart. The foundational element of faith is a discontented heart. And what's he mean by that? Well, if you're living with a hope of something more, it's because you're unhappy or with discontented with what you currently have. So if you, if you are hoping for something more, it's because actually your circumstances and who you are as a person, you're unhappy with something in your life. Take, for example, you decide to go to John Lewis at home this afternoon to find a new TV. You're probably doing that for one of two reasons. Either you don't have a TV, or you're unhappy for whatever reason with the one that you already have. So you go there because you're unhappy to get a new one. You're hoping for something more than you currently have. Or another example, maybe you go to marriage counselling because you're hoping that your marriage will change. You're hoping for something you don't yet have. You see the circumstance that you're living in with your partner and you decide, actually, we need to change this, so we're going to go to counselling to try and sort this thing out. You're hoping for something that you don't have yet. So therefore, actually, you see, hope is the substance of things hoped for. The foundational element of faith is a discontented heart. You're not going to hope for something if you're happy with everything. People don't come to faith in Jesus unless they actually kind of see that they need him. Um, Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Why is that? Because rich people are often quite content, yeah? It's quite easy to be contented with stuff. It's how the devil kind of dissuades us from following after God. We get stuff. And and actually, uh, in that, Jesus is saying that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because you can be so contented, So discontentment is the basis of faith. And it is true in all of us, if we dig deep down in all of our souls, whether we're Christian or not, actually we all long for something more. Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in men's hearts. That is to say that actually when we think about it, deep down in all of us, there is a longing to live forever. Oh, oh my word, I just pulled my time mic out. There is a longing in us to live forever. There's a longing for us for more. We kind of all believe that there's something more beyond this life. And so... Ecclesiastes is getting at something in our hearts in that. There's a longing in us for more. So faith is the substance of things hoped for. Secondly, the writer to the Hebrew says that faith is the evidence of things not seen. How do you evidence something you can't see? How can you evidence something you can't see? We recently had a leak in our kitchen, uh, above our kitchen ceiling, and Nick Howes came round and had a look at it for us. And I knew we had a leak. Not because I could see where the leak was coming from, but because I saw the effects of the leak. There was a growing stain emerging on our kitchen ceiling. I could see it gradually growing. And Nick said, put a pencil line on it. And in a couple of weeks' time, if it's grown some more, you've definitely got a leak. And we definitely had a leak. And I didn't know the leak was there, but I saw the evidence of the leak. The evidence of the leak was this growing stain on the ceiling. Nick came around and was like, yep, you've got a leak. And then we had to 
take the bath out to find the leak. We found the leak in the end. We knew it was there, but the evidence was there beforehand. We saw it already. In the same way, whilst we don't see God, we have become convinced that he is there. That's why you're here at church this morning. You're here at church this morning, you're a Christian this morning, because you are convinced that God exists. You are convinced, without any shadow of a doubt, that God exists. That is faith. And as Sam Storms, who's a a, a, a preacher from America, puts it, faith is warranted confidence and justified trust. It's warranted confidence and justified trust. It is not putting your trust in something you know nothing about. It's not wishful thinking. That isn't faith. If you hear people talk about faith in that way, that's not what faith is. Faith isn't superstition. Faith isn't believing in your heart something which your mind tells you isn't true. That isn't faith either. Nor is it believing in something for which you have no evidence. Faith isn't without fact. Okay, It's not without fact. Faith isn't primarily a heart thing. Faith is actually a head thing. Faith is placing your trust in something in the light of all the evidence you have. So, I believe in God because I see the evidence and the the work that he's done in my life, so therefore I believe in him, but also I see the evidence and things around me. I see that Jesus exists. I see that uh, the world exists. I believe in God because I see creation. I believe in God because I, I believe he's spoken to me. So therefore, it's the evidence that I have has made me, has caused me to come to that conclusion. Yes, God exists. And the writer says... Um, to the Hebrew says that you, no one will, will ever know God, will ever see God, unless they believe that he exists. We believe that God exists. When you read Hebrews 11, uh, which is a description of a variety of biblical figures and how they displayed faith, you will find one thing in common about all of them. That they had a focus to their lives, that, they were, that was based around something they hadn't obtained yet, but they knew was there. And if you read Hebrews 11, it's interesting because this kind of thing that they knew was there was Jesus. Was Jesus. These Old Testament characters you have, you have Moses. It it talks about Moses and it says actually he considered disgrace for Christ greater than the riches of Egypt. How could he consider treasures of Christ greater than the, uh, 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 sorry, disgrace for Christ greater than the treasures of, of Egypt? How could he do that if Jesus wasn't even born yet? It's because he was looking forward. He knew that something was coming. He had a hope for something in the future that he hadn't yet obtained. The hope of a saviour, the hope of a messiah coming. Jesus was the great reward they were looking for. Jesus was the great reward that they were after. Their actions, their motive was one man. It was Jesus. They were uncompromising in their pursuit and unhappy to settle with anything less than to see and know him. They had in the words of Jesus, found the pearl of great price. And they were willing to give everything in their lives in order to obtain it. They lived with a direction that was on heaven. They lived with that direction their whole lives. And faith is that continual upward focus, that drive towards that thing that we are discontented for in our lives, but we know is there, Jesus. So faith isn't spelt risk. It's not a risk to believe in Jesus like that. And that's not what John Wimber was getting at when he said that faith is spelt R-I-S-K. But what he was saying is that true faith, faith that says, I believe in Jesus, faith that says, I'm going to put my trust in him, will take you on crazy rides and crazy adventures in faith. He was saying, look, when you put your trust in Jesus, you have to be prepared that he's going to take you into situations and out of situations that other people around you will go, that is a risk. You doing that is a risk. If you're prepared to have faith in Jesus, if you're prepared to trust him with your whole life, you will take risks for him. Why is that? Maybe you're sitting there going, why is that? Why can't the Christian life just be comfortable? 
you might say to yourself. Well, look at the Gospels. Look at Acts. See what Jesus does with the lives of his disciples. When the disciples really choose to follow him, because when we read the, the, the New Testament accounts of the disciples, we're reading about those who are closest to him, the ones who were always following him. There would have been probably some other people hanging around the back t- background who maybe at times followed him and at other times went off and did other things. But you look at the ones who really chose to follow him. They're the ones that we read about in the New Testament. You see, for them, it's never comfortable. It's never easy. He's always stretching them beyond their expectations, beyond what's comfortable. Because he knows that as he does that, as he stretches them, as he challenges them, they will grow in their understanding of just how big God is and how great his kingdom is. And God will do the same with you if you choose to follow him in the same way. If you choose to say, actually, do you know what? I'm going to put my total faith in God for my life. I'm going to believe in him for everything for my future. I'm going to believe in God. I'm going to follow after him. No matter what that means or what it takes for me to do that, I'm going to have that kind of faith. So that's, that's how I would define faith. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But what does this risk-taking faith look like? And what does this risk-taking faith look like? Well, I thought what we'd do just for about 10 minutes is go through a, a story from the Old Testament. And we're going to read Joshua 3 together. So if you've got a Bible, um, you might want to grab Joshua 3 out. We're going to start from verse 7. I've put the words up on the screen, so if you haven't, that's totally cool. So Joshua 3, verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, and that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will drive out without fail from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Jerishites, the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in a heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped into the brink of the water... Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zatharen. And those flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. That's a bit of a mad story about risk-taking faith. It's a bit crazy to us. We can't quite comprehend that. That for a moment, a whole nation of people crossed a river that had dried out before their very eyes. But that's what they did. So here's this situation that we read about in this story. The Israelites are at the end of a long 40-year journey. They could see the promised land. They had this promise over them as a people that they were going to go to a land that God had given to them. 
They had this promise over them that they believed that God had called them to something. And they journeyed and journeyed and journeyed until the point they got to the brink of it. They could physically see across this river the promised land that God was giving them. And they were, had been living with the expectation of the promised land. And here it was. It was right there in front of them. And throughout that, they were trusting in God. And my first thing I'd like to say about risk-taking faith is it requires that we trust Jesus. So risk-taking faith requires that we trust Jesus. And the situation we read here shows a crazy amount of trust. Joshua had to trust what God was saying to him. He had to stand up before these people and say, this is what God's going to do. Are you with me? The priests had to trust Joshua and the Israelites had to trust both God and Joshua that God was actually going to do what he said he was going to do. According to Numbers, the book of Numbers, it says that over 601,730 men crossed the Jordan. So if you start accounting for women and children as well into that figure, a rough ballpark estimate of the, estimate of the people crossing that river would be, what, 1.8 million if you sort of say, well, some people are going to have more children and some people are going to have uh, no children, you'd probably be looking at about 1.5 to 1.8 million people crossing the river. That's a lot of people. And what do they do? They put their trust in God and they follow the Ark of the Covenant across the river. That's really important. Because secondly, I'd say that this, that risk-taking faith means that we follow after the presence of God. It means that we follow after the presence of God. The the ark symbolised the very presence of God with with the Israelites. The ark had um, some manna in it. It had Aaron's staff that budded. And it had the tablets that the the Ten Commandments were written on. And it was was symbolic of the presence of God with the Israelites. It was the presence of God going before them. It was reminiscent of so many other Bible stories to them. They'd be thinking, these Israelites would be thinking of one story though. And they'd be thinking of a story that comes up all the time in the Bible, the crossing of the, the, the Israelites through the Red Sea when they came out of Egypt. This was a miracle that was reminiscent of another miracle to them as a people. The great moment when God redeemed his people and God saved them out of slavery. And it started, you see, didn't it, with God's presence calling his people out of Egypt. God came and met Moses. The presence of God came and met Moses. It started with the presence And risk-taking faith means following after that presence. You see, this was like their generation's version of what happened to the generation before them. This miracle for the generation that crossed the Jordan was almost like a a smaller outworking of what they'd seen their forefathers do before them. It was God reminding them of one thing. I'm the same God. I'm the same God who called your forefathers out of Egypt. I'm your God today. You can still follow me. I'm the same God for you. I go before you. And there's loads of other stories in the Bible that echo it as well. And another echo of it is Jesus out on the water, calling Peter to come and join him. You see, actually, in that, there's this this picture of God calling us first, the presence of God going before us, and him calling us to join him, to go after him, to follow after him. The kind of faith God wants us to have is the kind where he goes out in front and calls us to follow him. That's the kind of faith that God requires us to have. And what's so comforting about that is that we know that God is going before us and it enables us to trust him. Thirdly, risk-taking faith requires obedience, no matter how crazy it might look to other people. And this event in this story is baffling. 
The priests are told to carry the ark into the Jordan, which isn't a stream, okay? Verse 15 says something quite significant. It says that it's a river in flood season. Now, I managed to find a video on YouTube of the Jordan in flood season. Could you just pop it up for me? Is that right? Now, the Israelites, before they crossed that, had been camping there for three days. Imagine they were looking at that for three days, thinking, we've got to cross that. And Joshua goes, God's given me the way we're going to cross this river. And so what he says is, calls the priest over to him. He says, look, guys, you're going to carry the ark and you're going to go into that. (laughs) I think if it was me in that situation, I think I would have said to Joshua, Joshua, have you been smoking the manor again? Like... There would be a part of me that would be very, very concerned with the idea that actually you're asking me to put my foot in this river and you're telling me that when I put my foot in this river, the water's going to stop flowing. Are you, honestly, are you mad, Joshua? I would be trying to go back to Genesis 6 and talk to him about Noah who built an ark and show him that you can build a boat and say, well, look, actually, maybe we could just build a boat to go across it. Or maybe I'd be looking for the Israelite version of Norman Foster and saying, you know, could you just design us a bridge? We'll get across it eventually. Or we'll look for another way round. Or we'll wait for the flood to be over. That's not what God calls them to do. God calls them to step out in faith into this torrent of water. And what's amazing is, is they do it. I can't believe it. I would be like, no, I'm not doing it. Choose another priest. I'll watch on and see what happens. You see, risk-taking faith requires obedience. It requires that we obey God. It requires that we obey him. And obedience to God can sometimes run the risk of us potentially looking like idiots, of looking like fools. If we step out in faith, I don't know what might happen. There was that moment, there would have been that moment when the first priest put his foot down and everybody would have been waiting. You can imagine, you know, maybe they'd be going, oh, you know, in the background. And there was that moment when that priest put his foot down and then God intervened. You see, and lastly, on what I wanted to say about risk-taking faith, it requires action from us. There was that moment when the priest put his foot down. He had to put his foot in the river. Would God do it? Would he come through for the Israelites? And the story says that the water stopped and actually turned into a heap upstream. I don't know what that looked like. I like to think it was a big wall of water that they could see in the distance. And, um, you know, it's funny, this story, that they say they cross opposite Jericho. And you know what happens with Jericho? They march around it, don't they? Imagine what the, the people in Jericho were thinking when this happened. They might have seen it going on and go, flipping heck, these people have got God on their side. You know, you think about further on in the story and you think, gosh, this was a sign, not just to them, but a sign to the nations around them as well, that God was on their side. But it took action from them. It took an action. It took a result. They had to do something. And what's interesting is it's not just the priest who had to take the action. Every single Israelite had to cross that river. Every single Israelite had to take that miracle for themselves and trust in God for it. They all had to cross over. And I was thinking about this. What would happen if I was the millionth person to cross over, or actually worse still, the last one to cross over? I'd have to trust God just as much as the first, the second, the fourth, or the fifth. There'd be that little bit in my brain going, 
oh, I don't know whether God actually likes me as much as these guys. Maybe he's going to just wash me down river a little bit and make, teach me a lesson. There would be that bit in my brain playing on my, on my mind. But actually, these guys are called to have faith and they do it. They step out in faith to enter the promised land. Risk-taking faith requires that we act. It requires that we act. And there is a flip side to all of this as well. And it's actually here in our story, if you read around it. The enemy of ground-taking, risk-taking faith is contentment and comfort in your current situation. And fear and doubt about what might happen if you decide to step out in faith. And our enemy uses this tactic to stop us from stepping out. Just think about those Israelites in the story. They had travelled from Egypt to Canaan. And I said it would taken them 40 years. It isn't a 40-year journey from Egypt to Canaan. I was watching a video yesterday of a guy who cycled around the world in 79 days on a bike. This wasn't a 40-year journey. This was an 11-day journey that took a group of people 40 years. Why did it take them 40 years to do it? It took them 40 years to make this journey because there was a whole generation of people who didn't trust God. There was a whole generation of people who didn't believe that God was going to take them into the promised land. There was a generation of people who wanted to go back to the quote-unquote comfort of being in Egypt in slavery because they thought it would be better than the situation that they found themselves in. There was a group of people who didn't trust God to take them into the promised land. They were more content to be slaves and to be fed than to follow God on a journey of faith. They didn't keep their eyes firmly fixed on God, but they started to complain and grumble among them. And so rather than entering the promised land with the people who didn't really trust him, God decided to say, we're going to wait this out. And actually what we'll do is we'll enter it into the promised land with the people who are prepared to trust me, who are prepared to put me first, who are prepared to follow my presence. Because we can miss out on the best that God has for us if we don't follow after him with faith. And this leads to my third question. So therefore, how can we, as a church, display risk-taking faith? How can we do that as a people? Well, I think we do that in two ways. We do it corporately and we do it individually. So firstly, how can we display it as, as individuals? Well, when we see somebody among us taking a risk, demonstrating a risk, we should celebrate with them and encourage them. Like the, like the two guys this morning doing scones. They were here this morning at half past nine, buttering up scones and putting some jam on it because they're taking a risk. They're stepping out. They're going to go on, they're going to go on a little journey. And we should celebrate with them today and encourage them by donating some money and having a scone because that will encourage them. Yeah, We should celebrate and join with them and encourage them in their faith step that they're taking. Another example, when the young people lead us in worship. It's really easy. I'm, I'm, so I'm, you know, I lead worship. So it's quite easy for me. I can criticise somebody who's playing or playing in the band if I don't think that they've done something well musically. There's a part of my brain that goes, oh, they didn't do that very well. But actually, what should I be doing? I should be encouraging them. I should be saying, you did a really good job today. These are the things that you did really, really well. That should be my attitude. I should be encouraging them as they step out in faith, as they step out and take a risk, because that's what they do. When somebody brings a prophetic word for the first time and shares their faith with somebody, do you, when, when they stand up at the front, do you criticise them because they got something slightly wrong? Or do you encourage them because of, of what they said? So we must be encouraging of one another. We must celebrate with one another as we step out in faith. Gateway needs to be an environment and should be an environment and is an environment 
where failure or getting things wrong are never as important as stepping out in faith. We need to create an environment where failure isn't tutted at, where failure isn't tutted at or moaned about, but it's a normal part of who we are because we want to grow as disciples of following Jesus. And we must celebrate with one another when uh, we step out in faith. You see, risk-taking faith is easier on Sundays. It's easier to get up. I know for some of you, you hate standing in front of people and speaking. It's easier to get up here than it is, I think, to share faith with somebody during the week, to pray for somebody for healing during the week. And we must actually be encouraging of one another in all the ways that we are living out as Christians so that actually we are encouraging one another to keep stepping out in faith, not give up, not worry about failing. So that's individually. We take steps of faith as individuals and we must encourage one another as we do it. Secondly, and corporately, and uh, there are two things I want to touch on here. The first, first of all, it's giving, actually. The Riverside Centre has become a huge part of our faith journey in the last two years as a, as a people. We believe that God has given us a strategic base um, to, to reach a community within Ashford. And the facility is providing us with a place to dream big about ministries and projects that we can run. And we're investing into it. And we're investing into it as a church continually because we believe that God is going to use it to expand his kingdom in Ashford. And a way that you can step out in faith is through giving sacrificially uh, and in faith for what God is doing with us on the 1st of July when we have our special offering. Risk-taking faith is often hardest when we start to talk about our bank accounts. Yeah? It's hardest then. Money is often the thing we hold on to the tightest. We think, actually, if I can just control one thing in my life, it's what I spend. We often, well, I know I do, I turn into Gollum with the ring, with with my money. I'm like, it's mine. It's my own. You can't touch it. I love the principle of the first fruits in the Old Testament, and it gets talked about a lot, but there's something that often gets missed with this whole thing about the principle of first fruits giving. You might have heard this. So when somebody speaks on tithing or giving 10%, they talk about giving your first fruits to God. And what they're basically saying by that is that you give the first bit of your income into God. You give the first bit of your income into God. The first bit of your wage. The first chunk. And you say, hey, God, I know it's all yours. I'm going to recognise that. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to give you this money. Did you know that in an Old Testament context, that required a lot of risk-taking faith? And it required risk-taking faith because when people gave in their first fruits, they were actually giving in food to God. They were giving in grain to God. They were taking the first part of the harvest that they would have taken off of their trees, the lowest hanging fruit, the things that grew out first, and they were giving that in to the temple. They were saying, look, God, you've given us this, so we're going to give it back to you. They were taking their first fruits and giving it back to God. But that was a massive act of faith because they had no idea what would happen the day after. They didn't know when, once they'd given their first fruits in what might happen tomorrow or the day after that. They didn't know whether a drought might come and hit all of Israel and therefore they run out of, uh, of food. They didn't know. They were giving their first fruits in faith that God would keep providing for them the way that he had provided for them um, up to that point. And so first fruits giving is an amazing example of faith. It's saying, look, actually, I'm going to trust God, not just for today, but for tomorrow and the day after. So giving takes faith. And so that's one area that I would suggest today that God might be speaking to you about how you can have risk-taking faith. And uh, secondly, and lastly, as a church... It would be easy for us 
it would be easy for us to be comfortable with what God has given us. We have, a, we have a great community here. There's some amazing stories of what God is doing among us. And we have a community where we care and support for one another. And we've also now got a fantastic facility that I've just spoken about at the Riverside. It would be easy for us to sit back, relax and say, well, that's our lot then. This is who we'll be for the next 10, 20, 30 years as a church. We'll keep meeting at the North School as long as they'll have us here. We'll be here and, and that'll be fine. We're, we're content. We're happy. We've, we fill the room. That's great. Did you know the biggest barrier to church growth is when you hit 200? When a church reaches 200, there is a natural tendency to become complacent and content. Why is it? Well, the quality of the Sunday experience has gone beyond a small church. So actually, you've got decent musicians leading you in worship. The kids' work is good because there's decent people doing it. The the worship experience is good. Small groups create community. You feel like actually you could get lost if you want to get lost in a church of 200. But at the same time, everybody can know you and you can know everyone if you want to. In a church of 200, you can know everybody's name. And also, more importantly, be known by, by the people leading the church. You feel like you can have a connection by the, with the people leading you. Because in a church of 200, they can know you and you can know them. Churches of 200 tend to plateau because the members become content. They become content about the environment that they're in. Why am I saying that? Well... I'm sure you can guess what I'm saying now. In the last six months, you, some of you might have seen me. I've been doing, I've, I've, I'm a bit of a stats person for church. I kind of find it quite interesting. Um, we've been, I've been counting every week people here. Well, as a church, we average over the last six months from January to June this year as a church, 250 if you include kids. If you take out children, we average 195. If you take the same six months from last year, we average 185. We are growing as a church. But it's interesting how close we continue to be to that 200 mark. In February, we had every single week of February, we were above 200. But it's interesting, isn't it, how close we are to that plateau. Dare I say, we could be in danger of becoming content as a church. But we don't believe that we're about that. We believe that we're about one thing. We're about Jesus and the advance of his kingdom. We believe that the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations applies to us in Ashford. That's what we're here for. William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II, said the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. We exist for the benefit of Ashford. We want to see people brought into the kingdom of God. We want to see God's kingdom, his rule and reign in Ashford and beyond. We want to see... God's kingdom in our workplaces, God's kingdom in our schools, God's kingdom in our families. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and it keeps growing and growing and growing until it is a tree that birds can perch on. The image of that is a kingdom that is advancing and ever increasing, becoming ever larger as God's rule and reign and the kingdom of heaven invades individuals, families, communities, towns, cities, companies, workplaces and governments. It's an ever increasing kingdom. That's what we believe in. There's no room for contentment in that. There's no room for contentment in that. So there should be a hunger and a thirst in each of us for more of God and his kingdom in our lives. And there should be a hunger and a thirst in each of us for more of God in our community. There should never be any room for contentment about how large we are as a church. There should never be contentment about what we see God doing among us. And that sounds a bit funny. It might sound a bit cynical, but it's true. 
You see, we should be celebrating and rejoicing when we see miracles among us. But at the same time, there should be, God, we want to see more. We want more, God. We want more kingdom breakthrough. We want more advance because, God, we believe you're a big God. We thank you, God, for the miracles that you're doing. But, Lord, we want more. That's the attitude of kingdom advance. Now, the hunger and desire to see God's kingdom advance in Ashford is driving us practically as a church. The advance of the kingdom is, is a driver behind our aim to start our second Sunday meeting at the Riverside during the autumn term. And we all need to have faith for that as a community. Faith that God will use this practical step to grow the church and faith for how God will use us as individuals in it. You see, as we start to talk about this, as we start to discuss it, having a second meeting on a Sunday will be, mean more opportunities to serve, more opportunities to step out in your gifting that God's given you and more opportunities to lead in the church. And we should be in faith for how God may use us as individuals within that. It's going to provide us with a fantastic opportunity to reach the community around the riverside. And vitally as well, it's going to provide us capacity here on a Sunday morning so that we can keep growing. Because for us at the, here at the North School meeting, it's going to be a, a, just as much a, a faith step as for those who will go and meet at the riverside. Because actually we're going to be trusting that God's going to keep growing and keep doing work among us. We need to be in faith for the season ahead. You need to be in faith. And I know that this is a culture talk, but it's also a vision talk in that actually God is calling us on a journey together of faith. And there is a sense in which actually we are entering a new season as a church, a new season of stepping out in faith. And we need to be in faith that as we look effectively at a Jordan River in front of us, whenever we hit an opportunity like this, we could turn away and be scared and say, well, actually, oh, gosh, a second meeting, really? We've done that before, you know. I've had this conversation with a few people. We did two meetings before here at the North School. It was such hard work. That could lead us to dissuade us from thinking, actually, we, we want to do it at all. But God's calling us on a journey of faith together because God is growing his church here. And we need to be in faith for what God is going to do among us because we are on the edge of a Jordan River again. And we are called to be people who fix our eyes on Jesus, who run after his kingdom, who take risks of faith. You are called to be that person in your workplace, in your family, in your daily life. And I'm called to be that person too. And equally, we're called to be that as a church family. I hope in some ways that's helped you today to see what risk-taking faith looks like. And I thought what we could do now is just pray as we close the meeting today. I want to pray for you that God imparts faith into your heart both for you as an individual, but also for you in terms of your workplace and your family. So if we can just bow our heads, I'm going to pray for you, um, and, then, and then we'll see what, what God does. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you, God, that you are a great God. Jesus, you said to Peter that I will build my church. You build the church, Lord, it's not us. But Lord God, you are partner with us in that kingdom advance. Jesus, I thank you that you are about a great work in us as a church. Jesus, I thank you, God, that we are entering and we have entered into a new season. Jesus, I'm reminded of that verse in the Song of Solomon where it says, The winter is past and the rains are gone. Flowers appear all over the earth. It is the promised day, a season of singing. God, I thank you that we are entering a summertime as a church. And Jesus, we pray, Lord God, as you continue to bless what is going on amongst us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have faith. Help us to have faith. Faith in you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
Faith in you, Jesus, the one who went before us, the one who is before us, calling us to follow after. Faith in you, Jesus, as you encourage us to take faith steps. I pray for each of us, Jesus, that we would trust you in it. Lord, I pray as a church, as we take steps, Lord God, out, Lord God, into risky territory, God, that you would be with us, that you would be with us, God, in the season ahead. And Lord, I pray for individuals here in this room today, facing difficult situations at work this week, facing difficult situations in family. Father, I pray you'd help them to have risk-taking faith this week, that they would trust you, God, in their situations, that they would trust you, God, to be there with them, that they would trust you, God, when you speak to them to say, Pray that prayer over this person. Speak, speak this truth over them. Offer to pray for healing for them. Lord, that they would trust you to do it. Father, I pray. And I pray, Lord Jesus, as you do that, as they step out in faith, as you did with the Israelites in the Jordan, I pray that you would show up and show yourself to be the God that you are, the God of miracles, the God of wonders, the God who goes before us. Lord Jesus, we love you. We, we thank you so much for this church. I thank you so much for the people in this room and all that they are to me. But Lord, I pray for them, each one of them, Lord, that as they go out from this place this morning, God, that you would stir their hearts for faith, stir their hearts, a hunger for more, a discontentment with what they have in you and hunger for more, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.